Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the new cyber workforce strategy at DHS might not stay at DHS. I think this model actually is quite transportable to larger organizations that have larger cyber workforces. I don't see that this is something that can work generally across the federal government. A high mountain to climb for quality in a new contracting vehicle. If you're really talking about awarding the top quality, how can you just say we're going to score everybody average? That's terrible, in my opinion. And setting up the next generation of talent for success. You just can't take these digital savants and say, hey, come into the government and you know, you're going to work with uh, Windows 5 and You've got to take these people and put them not only in a job that is exciting, but you have to support them with the tools they need to succeed. It's Monday, October 25th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies should work together more on data challenges they share, according to the new Federal Data Strategy Action Plan for 2021. The strategy lists 10 actions for agencies to take, including four listed as, quote, community of practice or shared solution actions. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee will review a bill the House passed to defend software at the Homeland Security Department against cyber attacks. The bill would require DHS to identify materials used in its software to defend against supply chain cyber attacks. The bill becomes law. DHS would have 180 days to apply the bill's provisions to new and existing software contracts. The contractor that's building the electronic health records program for the Defense Department and Department of Veterans Affairs is laying off 150 people. The new CEO of Cerner, David Feinberg, confirmed the layoffs in an email to the company's employees. No word on whether any of the affected employees work on the DOD VA electronic health records project. You can read more about all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The Department of Homeland Security will roll out its new cyber talent management system November 15th. It will give the agency flexibility in pay and hiring that it's never had before. Jerry Buckholtz is strategic advisor at the Bolden Group. She's former chief human capital officer at NASA. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you see in the cyber talent management system that appeals to you as a Chico? And what do you see that's potentially challenging to implement as a Chico? Welcome. Thank you so much. One of the things that's really appealing to me is that it is new and modern. And we haven't had a major change uh, to the federal employment system, a major change in my professional lifetime. So, and that is a very long time. So it's really exciting to see something new, to see something that is based on current technologies, Um, And it's very, very focused in a very targeted way towards solving a really important problem. So all of those things are very, very appealing to me. Um, As a Chico, I looked at this and the first thing generally as a Chico that I thought was this took a long time to develop. And I never think that's a bad idea. I think these kinds of things should and do take a long time to develop. Having said that, 
there is a lesson learned in there for future modifications to the federal workforce that also need to happen in the hiring space. And that is that the timeline is long and people have to make a long commitment if we are ever going to move towards something new and more modern and better targeted to the needs of the federal workforce to serve the American people. And the second thing that um, really made me think a little bit in terms of if I were going to pick this up and implement it NASA, what would that mean? And that is the backend infrastructure required for this. There's a lot of human capital infrastructure. There's a lot of management participation and buy-in, a lot of subject matter expert uh, participation. And all of that is time and all of that is money. So it strikes me that a significant level of resource commitment over the long haul needs to be there aside from the higher salaries in order to make this work in, a, in this organization or any other organization. Um, the, my colleague Tim Starks writes on cyberscoop.com, if the DH plan is successful, it could serve as a model for other agencies looking to hire cyber pros into the federal government. One would hope it wouldn't take them seven years, uh, the other agencies, the way that it did. It, you referred to the long time that it took here. This was uh, uh, codified into law in 2014, and they're just now uh, passing it. What does that say about the broader changes that people talk about all the time that are necessary in the federal workforce, especially for technology people, but not just for technology people, Jerry? I think this model actually is quite transportable to larger organizations that have larger cyber workforces. I don't see that this is something that can work generally across the federal government because of that infrastructure and participation requirement for a small organization, even an organization the size of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, 3,000 people. The commitment of resources there would be so great as to be prohibitive. And cybersecurity is very important to that organization. And as the agencies get smaller from there, it becomes less and less viable. And then that sets up unwanted competition. So these are the kinds of things that you have to balance. Once everything's in place and people can, and it can be made vanilla and it can be start, start to be transported across, then I think you start getting into something that has a lot of applications for very technical work. I, I have a harder time seeing it for administrative occupations, which take up a large chunk of the federal government. You get at something there by using the word competition that you and I have talked about before about different classifications, though. Every agency in the government needs cyber professionals badly. The competition is not just between the federal government and the private sector. It's agency to agency. And so I wonder if some of these specialties, it doesn't make sense for what appears to be a rejuvenating uh, Office of Personnel Management to lead this effort and find cyber people on the whole and then distribute them among the agencies where the needs are greatest so that DHS isn't fighting the Defense Department, isn't fighting the Nuclear, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and so on. What, what would that or could that look like, or does that not make sense uh, in, in a multi-agency, multipolar environment? 
I think it's inevitable because of the requirements for this uh, infrastructure that's needed in order to make this work, where many organizations just are not going to be able to afford to do that. The, but you hit the nail right on the head, and that is competition between the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense. That is unwanted. And so what do you do in order to not have all the cybersecurity, the really good ones, bail from the Department of Defense to go over to Homeland Security, where the work might be more in the moment, more, uh, more exciting, more adventurous, um, and significantly higher paid. And that's something that the federal government, OPM, and you know, OMB need to keep an eye on. One final thought. My colleague Tim Starks, writing this story up on cyberscoop.com, writes, the regulation does nothing to deal with another factor that complicates the swift hiring of cybersecurity personnel, background checks and security clearances. It's another issue you've been paying attention to for a long time. As Tim says, there's no impact on that part of this process, is there, Jerry? No, not on this part of the, um, that part of the process. That is... You know, that's one of those issues that can be solved by putting more resources and priorities onto um, decisions about how federal clearances get processed. Um, the federal government could put a rule set, uh, could put a special unit in place and put a rule set out there that says cyber jobs go to the head of the pile. That kind of thing could help. But and, and federal agencies could do a good job of screening people up front. It gets complicated with this occupation because part of the play of this occupation may very well be something that makes it difficult for you to get a clearance. You know, having hacked something super swanky when you were in high school before you ever even thought about what that meant being for your long term career prospects. Um, it goes far beyond the normal pranks of stealing the snowman off the top of the Safeway that we used to see mm -hmm. that would raise eyebrows in the security crowd. So some thought needs to be put into, I think, very carefully, what is disqualifying for cybersecurity work? How do you adjudicate that? And how do you prioritize um, this kind of work um, in terms of the security clearance process because of the speed at which the occupation and the profession moves? Jerry Buckholtz, thanks very much. It's great to talk to you again. Good to see you. You can read more about the Cyber Talent Management System of DHS in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The General Services Administration says it's on target to release its Polaris solicitation by December 21st. It's setting an aggressive timeline for getting proposals, too. Jim Williams is partner at Shambach at Williams Consulting. He's former deputy administrator and acting administrator at the General Services Administration. Jim, welcome. It's great to talk to you. What do you take away from what GSA is trying to do with Polaris, both time-wise and content-wise? Welcome. Well, thanks, Francis. Good to see you. I think GSA is doing a pretty good job of communicating. I attended their last industry forum, and yeah, honestly, they could have spent a lot more time answering questions versus giving people the basics, which I think people know what SDVOSB stands for, things like that. You know, I think their timeline, they were pretty cagey about when that is. 
And certainly they've got a lot of interest, 16, 1700 companies, and they're trying to make sure that they can meet the Biden-Harris administration's diversity, equity, inclusion goals. And that's going to mean a lot of awards. Uh, they're not including 8A, but every other small business category certainly is. Uh, so I, I'm sure they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, they have released sections L and M, and they think that's good. One piece I thought was missing, if you don't mind, you know, looking at CPARs, it seems like for the uh, initial draft, for the initial awards, they're not going to count CPARs. They're just going to say, if you get a three, you're good enough. And yet they say they want to award to top quality firms, yet they're not recognizing top quality. And I think that's an issue for them. What would fix that, Jim? Well, I think do what they've done before, which is include in their scoring mechanism. If you've got a higher CPARS rating, mean you've done better work for the customer, then you should get more points. Simply put. One of the things that struck me about this digital workshop, James Mitchell said, we're targeting late fall for release of this. Since this is Polaris, this is my colleague, John Hewitt-Jones, quoting him, we're following the astronomical calendar definition of fall, which would be December 21st. That's kind of cute, isn't it? It's kind of cute, but I think even later said we might even miss that date, you know, the December 20th or whatever it is. So I, I think uh, industry doesn't really know. And I think the more GSA can communicate, the better. And they have their interact portal, which is, I think, good. But everybody's waiting for these, whatever, they have 300 questions, which they really didn't get to them, I think, on the last industry forum. That's going to be very important. Like, how do they address things like CMMC? I mean, people want to know, what do we have to do to get more points there? And that's really the core, it strikes me, of I think what you alluded to earlier about the communication problem. People want to know what they need to do to get a better score. That's really the bottom line, isn't it? And not just about what you just described, but about this entire process. Well, I think that's exactly right. What do we have to do to win? And these uh, companies look at what do we think the threshold will be? How, how can we get the most amount of points in all these different categories? And for GSA, I think you want to award to the top quality companies. Now, they're going to make a lot of small business awards. That's good. But meanwhile, you know, the agencies need this. So anything they can do to devote the resources to this, the better. And by the way, this is under Laura Stanton. I think she's A+. Plus. Um, so I think she'll handle it well. John Hewitt-Jones writes on fedscoop.com, following the release of the solicitation, whenever it comes, December or, or if it slides, GSA expects that proposals for the contract will then be due within 40 to 60 days. That struck me as kind of fast. Well, I think it is, but I think agencies are, I mean, excuse me, industry is preparing now. And, and them releasing L&M tells them what do they have to do to win. And I think people have a general sense this is going to be almost everything IT. So I think they are preparing. And, you know, it's really just about putting in your points and then making sure that you know you can justify those points. So I don't think that's too fast a time frame. But I do think on certain of these areas, like CMMC, which are a little vague right now, they've got to get clear direction what they have to do to get those points. One of the things that John points out in his story is the uh, the new draft section that clarifies how they're looking at um, mentor-protege relationships. Does that strike you as a big deal? Is that important? Is there something new here, or is it just the fact that they're citing it? Well, I think that's very important because when contractors look at this and think, okay, I don't have enough points, so I need to get into some kind of relationship 
whether it's mentor protege or CTA contractor teaming agreement, something that can then maximize their points by the coming together. I think GSA must clarify those rules and do that as soon as possible. Because one thing I didn't realize when I was inside government, how much these partnerships can shift based upon what the government says about these subjects. How would you tell a company, a small company, to go out and find themselves a mentor to be the protege to? Well, I think they they look at you know who has that kind of uh, ability to bring points, who looks like they're a good fit, and I think you know companies kind of know other companies, so and and they know people because a lot of people move around here, so I, I think they 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 get a general sense of who is a good fit for us, who as a small business is not going to be uh, taken advantage of by that mentor, which I, I'm not saying that happens a lot, but I think certainly to small business. Uh, where it's a large award and the, and the small is a sub, small businesses get taken advantage of all the time. It's it's kind of sad. What would you watch as this continues? Is it just the timeline to see if GSA is able to hold to it? Is it just some of the markers that you talked about as far as communications and releasing information? Or are there other things that you think will be important to pay attention to, Jim? Well, I think most important right now is the communication, is answering those questions, clarifying you know, things you mentioned, mentor-protege, clarifying, you know, CPARs, does it count or not count? And if you're really talking about awarding the top quality, how can you just say we're going to score everybody average? That's terrible, in my opinion. Uh, looking at that, things like CMMC, getting the communication out there quickly and then letting the industry respond and then moving on. And GSA knows they've got to do very good due diligence on this because Alliance Small Business, they were so close on this. Just one uh, tiny mistake, which was understandable, but one tiny mistake really tripped that up. Jim Williams, great to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the Polaris contract in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. A chief information officer change is coming to one federal agency. Francisco Salguero, the outgoing CIO at the FCC, is on Tuesday's show. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Department has more than 600 artificial intelligence projects underway. The department asked Congress for $874 million for fiscal 2022 for artificial intelligence. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense and former co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. He joins me to continue the conversation we started on Friday's Daily Scoop podcast. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Before we talk about where the department's headed in artificial intelligence, you used the number 2030, the date 2030, a number of times in our conversation on Friday. Why is that the line of demarcation regarding artificial intelligence vis-a-vis our competition with China? Welcome back. It really is tied to our primary competitor, China, Francis. China has used 2030 as kind of the date where they want to break out and be the world leader. And so, in my view, if you're in a competition and you know exactly what your competitor's goal is, that then, okay, if you want to win, you have to prevent your competitor from reaching that goal. So 2030 was really something set in the ground by China. In fact, what China said, you know, they've been at this a while. Uh, They said by 2020, we want to pull even with the United States. By 2025, we want to 
get past them. And by 2030, we want to be the world innovation leader. So, again, as we talked on Friday, you know, they the reason why they're ahead in integration is not because they're inherently better at integrating the technology. It's that they have a coherent national plan. They are devoting a load of resources towards it. And they have specific national goals and national timelines like we just talked about. And so in their integration, and then they have a thing called civil-military fusion, in which there really isn't a demarcation line between the commercial sector and the government sector. The government sector can pull anything they want out of the commercial sector to help them in the competition. So, you know, they have a coherent plan. They have lots of resources. And this goes back to another thing you talked about on Friday, Mike Brown saying, look, we need a national statement a national policy and we said yeah that's exactly right we need the president to come out and say we're in this very important competition that is going to have an enormous impact on the lives of our citizens as well as global citizens especially those who live in democratic countries and we're going to win it just say it you know we're not going to tolerate being number two we're going to be number one so as i said this is a competition that uh, should be on the forefront of all Americans' minds. Mm-hmm. It's fine to say it. What comes behind that then, execution-wise, to actually make it happen? Well, there's all sorts of things that are happening right now. Uh, I don't re- recall the number, but I know it's getting close to 20 of the recommendations of the National Security Commission on AI have been introduced as law in the National Defense Authorization Act as it pertains to the Department of Defense. We've recommended establishing the Technological Competition Committee in the uh, office of the President. Um, and that is now being discussed in Congress. Uh, it is not, right now, uh, legislated. The amount of money that the, the U.S. is expending on research and development is going up in a significant way. Uh, there's several bills that say, you know, national competitiveness is absolutely important. So now what we have to see is it stays. You know, this isn't just something, let's make a policy statement and then not do anything about it. This is, can we keep this going? Can we keep the national debate going? Can we keep the resources going into uh, research and development? Can we attract the talent into the federal government to help us? You know, after Sputnik, there was a new schedule. I think it was called Schedule G. And it was designed to attract physicists and computer scientists into the government. And uh, Ash Carter, he always used to talk about this. He said, I came into the government under Schedule G. I was a physicist. And uh, so the same type of thing uh, you want to have... uh, we recommended having a digital services academy and uh, a program like ROTC program called the National Digital Reserve Corps. So we want to attract people both from the United States. We want to attract talent from around the world. We want to have new visas for high technology STEM credentialed people. Again, talent being very, very important in this competition. So if we see this keep going, 
you know, from year to year and Congress still saying, hey, we aren't doing enough. Well, we've got to do more. And the president, you know, calling on uh, the government, like the Department of Commerce, we need to have new IP laws. We need to have new standards. If we do that, we'll be okay. But it it requires, you know, <laughs> keep going. You uh, talk about putting the talent on the AI challenge, and I wonder if the same potential problem exists for the government uh, in this area that it exists for it in other areas, and and that is that it's not just putting the talent on the problem, it's keeping the talent on the problem. We're seeing a great resignation as a result of the pandemic, and it strikes me that's going to exacerbate the government's problem broadly. Uh, as far as whether people stay or go. Do you think the same challenge potentially exists uh, in the artificial intelligence world, or is the mission so compelling? And is that goal, that 2030 goal, if there's a strategy that articulates it well, so compelling that it will keep people engaged? Well, I'd answer in two ways. One, we heard a lot of people at the beginning of the commission say, hey, we can't we're never going to get a lot of talent into the federal government. They'll never be able to get paid like they could on the West Coast or with the Googles of the world and the Oracles and the Amazons and the Facebooks, humma, humma, humma. Uh, And when we started talking with young men and women, they said, look, our first salary isn't as important to us as graduating without crushing student debt is which is why the commission went the way it did, that we would offer full rides for people who wanted to work in the government. And in return for the full ride, they would agree to work for some period of time, be it two years or four years or whatever it might be. Yeah. So that's one way. The second thing is the thing that really, really chaps young men and women who come in is when they come into the government, they have to wait a, a month, I mean, wait a week to get a computer. Yeah. And then they have to wait another week to get a cat card so they can sign in to the uh, network. And you just can't take these digital savants and say, hey, come into the government and, you know, you're going to work with uh, Windows 5. And you've got to take these people and put them not only in a job that is exciting, but you have to support them with the tools they need to succeed. And uh, I think slowly but surely the department is doing a better job at this, but we got a long way to go. Bob, I loved having you on the program Friday. So glad you could come back today and join me to talk about this stuff some more. Thanks very much for your time. It was my pleasure, Francis. Take care. You can read more about the National Security Commission on AI's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The outgoing CIO at the FCC is on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.